0: And it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. And he too is the reason for the season. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. We are so glad you could join us today. Today, Pastor Elliot continues his series of messages on the Christmas word, Savior. Jesus is not merely a good example for us. He is the one who rescues us from sin and hell. And now, with his message for today, is our pastor, Robert Elliott.
1: And so, the Old Testament student, the Old Testament casual reader, should have seen that salvation was on God's heart and that God would provide a savior, Messiah. That was written on the wall of the Old Testament, and it was written in very large, bold letters. But what about the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, the very sweet name Jesus means Jehovah is Savior. Jesus means Jehovah is Savior. This Savior motif, this Savior theme, this Savior plot line, this Savior story continues from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And that God did send to the world his Savior should tell us that human beings' biggest problem is sin. Separation from God is our biggest problem. Transgression, trespass, rebellion, moral failure, depravity, unholiness. These are our biggest problems in the Bahamas. These are our biggest problems in the world. These are our biggest problems in our hearts. And because... Sin is our biggest problem. God sent us a savior. You know, if mankind's biggest problem was enlightenment, then God would have sent a philosopher. And if our biggest problem was ignorance, then God would have sent an educator. And if our biggest problem was poverty, God would have sent a billionaire. If it was an oppression, he would have sent an army general. If finishing out of the medals in the Olympics was our biggest problem, he would have sent an Olympic committee. If our biggest problem was lack of time, he would have sent us a time consultant. If it was greed, a philanthropist. If it was sickness, a doctor. If it was lack of innovation, he would have sent us an inventor. If our biggest problem was hunger, he would have sent us a farmer. If it was boredom, he would have sent us a movie maker. If our biggest need was a lack of a proper role model, God would have sent us an astronaut. If our biggest problem was injustice, maybe God would have sent us a lawyer or a judge. If our biggest problem was cultural refinement, then God perhaps would have sent us a poet or a painter or a sculptor. And if our biggest problem was an overall explanation, then perhaps God would have sent us a scientist. And if our biggest problem, as the liberals would tell us in Christianity, was a lack of an example, then God would have sent us a fitness model. But God didn't send us any of those things. Instead, God sent us a Savior, meek and mild. We esteemed him not. Ordinary to look at in physical appearance. In his humanity, Jewish. Because our biggest problem wasn't his sin and transgression and falling short and rebellion and trespass and independence of God and rebellion against God and moral filth. God sent us a Savior. In mercy, God sent us a Savior. Isn't it interesting that in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, one singular word was selected by the angelic host, and God the Holy Spirit wrote it down for posterity. In Luke 2 verse 11, the angels are speaking in the choir, for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior. Who is Christ, the Lord? Oh, what a beautiful title Savior is. Oh, what a clear job description Savior is. Oh, what a wonderful, everlastingly important mission being a Savior is. And I think it's worth noting this morning that Luke 2.11 doesn't use a king, although a king was born. It doesn't say Messiah, although the Messiah was born. It doesn't say a rabbi, although a teacher was born. It doesn't say an example was born, although he was an example. It doesn't even say the Son of God or the Son of Man was born. Oh, that's certainly true of Jesus, too. It says a Savior, a Savior is born to you in the city of David. You know, some liberal Christians and liberal churches and pulpits, wrongly think that Jesus is only our good example. You ask them who Jesus is, and they say he's our example. They don't say Savior because they don't believe they need a Savior because they don't believe sin separates them from a holy God. Everybody gets to heaven in their mindset. When you see Jesus as merely reduce him to a good example, do you know what it's like? It's like God giving us a jigsaw puzzle of, of time on earth and how to get to heaven gives us a jigsaw puzzle, and Jesus is the lid of the box. Jesus is just a picture on the lid of the box to these guys. And you assemble a puzzle yourself or you don't. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to be our example only. That's selling him short. That's like God saying, okay, mankind is in a skyscraper like on 9-11 where it's exploding and there's flames engulfing all the floors of the skyscraper and God sends a map. Here are the fire escapes. Here's a map. You kidding me? The fire on Shirley Street coming to church. You see that? If there was someone in that structure, and I don't know if there was or there wasn't, I was praying there wasn't, but the firefighters wouldn't hand handed them a map and say, you're going to get yourself out of the flames. God didn't send us a map. God sent us a firefighter, a savior. Praise his name. You know... Liberal Christians, those that don't take the Bible seriously, those who don't believe there's a literal heaven or hell, that Jesus is a literal Savior, people like that, they uh, discount the miraculous, and they don't want to see anything supernatural. If they can't explain it in their heads, with their eyes and their senses, they don't think it's true. My uh, wife Beth's grandmother, fine born-again lady in heaven many years now, she played the organ at her church. And this particular Sunday... Uh, there was a liberal seminary that was feeding her church and other churches in her denomination liberal graduates of the the seminary who didn't really believe the Bible being God's word and didn't believe in the miraculous, didn't believe in the supernatural. So she told us that one day she was playing the organ in her church for one of these liberal theologian guest preachers, and he was preaching on the feeding of the 5,000. And do you know what he told them? He said... That Jesus Christ fed the 5,000 with his magnetic personality. That he was such a magnetic person that they all walked a long distance and bought their own lunches and then came back. She was by the organ with a, with a fake tree like this. And as he was saying that Jesus fed the 5,000 with his magnetic personality, she just can't can't help herself. She's shaking this tree. She's shaking this tree in disagreement. And soon as the benediction was pronounced, she went up to this preacher, this young preacher, where in the world did you learn that Jesus fed the 5,000 by his magnetic personality? They walked a long distance and got their own lunches. Where did you learn that? At the seminary just down the road. And best grandma turned to best dad said, you go to Dallas Seminary. I wanted you to go to that seminary, but I can see that's no place for you to go. That's what liberals do. They say the world didn't need a Savior. God didn't need a Savior. God didn't send a Savior. He sent an example. He sent a jigsaw puzzle lid. He sent maps out of a burning building. No, he didn't. He sent a Savior. And that Savior is a supernatural miracle, and we mark that Christmas morning when we say God was born
0: to a virgin. Thanks, Pastor Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers.
2: Good morning. This is Pastor Nicholas, and I serve at at the youth pastor at Calvary Bible Church. Today we want to continue, as we started off last week, talking about the Advent season, and we talked about Advent is looking forward to someone. And we're talking about unwrapping this gift, the gift of Jesus Christ, as we look forward to the someone. And today we want to talk about what do we do? When you feel unqualified. Have you ever felt unqualified to do a job? A task? Um, If we're honest with ourselves, we've all been there. We've all done that. Um, And and when we think of our lives and we think of, you know, we look on TV, we see all these different people doing different things. You know, there are many different things today that people never thought about years ago. You know, today we have what they call YouTubers where people are online doing all these different videos and, and, and trying to create this atmosphere of getting popular by unwrapping toys and doing different things. And this is something that people never thought of years ago. But when we consider our lives and we look at what are you unqualified to do? You see, sometimes we feel unqualified and we don't need to feel that way. We let the fear of messing up or embarrassing ourselves keep us from doing something we really want to do. When we feel unqualified, we become so aware of our own flaws and shortcomings that we are afraid to do what's been asked of us. But here's what we need to realize that though we may feel unqualified to share God's gift, God loves to use ordinary people to share the story of Jesus. You see, too many times, the, the secret and, and, and the things that people like to come to you and say, Well, how can you do this? You know, why would you want to do this? You see, if we believe that Jesus is the greatest gift of all. Why don't we share the gift more often? I believe we don't always feel qualified to share the gift because reason one, we know we don't have all the answers to people's questions. Reason two, we aren't sure we are the most Jesus-like example out there. And number three, we're afraid the conversation would be awkward. But what if talking with others about the gift of Jesus wasn't that complicated? What if you were already qualified to share about the greatest gift the world has ever been given? You know, when I consider that and think of the greatest gift you know, you can think of a Christmas morning, the greatest thing that you ever thought you, you got on a Christmas morning and, and described. And I can guarantee you, you could describe that to every single detail of it. The question is, why don't we want to talk about the greatest gift like that? Why don't we want to talk about Jesus Christ in that way? You see, we want to look at the Bible. We want to look at people who thought that they were unqualified. But we see with Jesus Christ, we become qualified. As we think of Mark chapter one verse one eight, we want to before we look at that text we want to just think of something. Let's start with someone not so ordinary, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet he was Jesus' cousin. he was a little odd, even for a prophet, he lived in the desert, ate bugs, and made clothes made out of camels. Think about that for a second. This is the guy who God chose to prepare the way for Jesus, a guy who ate bugs, a guy who Which is odd, lived in a desert. He was not the guy who you would think that if I'm gonna pick someone, I'm gonna pick that guy. But God has a sense of humor. God says, You know what? I can use anyone. I can use anyone, and I want to choose John. And this is what it says in Mark chapter one, verses one eight. It says this The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sin. John wore a camel hair garment with leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, if you're wondering what the word repent means, it means to change your perspective and to change your ways. It means to turn your life upside down because you know the way you've been going wasn't the best way. You see, they were skeptics. People who didn't think much of John's message. But that was okay with John. Because the crowds of people who did not want to hear John speak. These people were tired of the things he was saying. And they were ready for the change that John was promising. John shared the gift of Jesus with others. Pointing people to their Savior and then trusted God to take it from there. You see, John recognized his role. He knew his role and he said, you know what? I'm going to prepare the way. I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to, you know, do what I'm supposed to do to prepare the way for Jesus because someone, he is going to be greater. That I'm not even worthy to touch or even tie his sandals. You see, John's name is one we know well because of the way he shared God's gift with others so publicly. But if you pay attention to the Bible, it's also filled with stories of ordinary people like you and me who started the gift of God as well. If you look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 to 26, it says this. As he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus' disciples got up and followed him. Just then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, If I can just touch his robe... I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her hand, and the girl got up. Then good, the news of the spread throughout the whole area. You see, this is what happened. First, Jesus healed the woman who had been suffering from a lifelong illness. Next, Jesus raised the girl from the dead and acted like it was no big deal. And finally, do you see what happened? The word spread. How do you think the news of Jesus' healing spread? There wasn't a big news story about it. Jesus didn't call the press. But the news about Jesus spread because ordinary people couldn't help but share what they had seen. It continues in Matthew chapter 9 verse 27 to 31. It says this, as Jesus went out and there two blind men followed him, calling out have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him and Jesus said, do you believe that I can do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. Their eyes were open, Then Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about it throughout the whole area. You see, once again, Jesus does something incredible. He heals two blind men and one who couldn't speak. This time, Jesus tells that they don't tell anyone. But as we see, this is what happens. When Jesus makes an impact in your life, there's nothing that you can do but to tell others. And this is what happens with these men. They couldn't help themselves but to tell others about what had happened to them. I ask you, what has Jesus done in your life? You see, these were ordinary people sharing some extraordinary news in the midst of their ordinary lives. I ask you, what is it that you need to share about Christ? What is holding you back from sharing the good news of Christ? Is it fair? Is it not having all the answers? You see, Christ has done an ordinary thing in, in our lives. If we have accepted Him as our Lord and Savior, and there's something that we need to do, and the one thing that we can do is tell others about it. Again, we talked a little bit about it last week. If we have this gift, and and you have this good gift, and you want to give it to someone, you're not going to hold it back, but you're going to want to tell people about it. And that's what we are. We have the words, and we can tell people about our testimony. We can tell people about Christ. We can say what Christ has done in our lives, what he's taken us from, and what we are now. And we can say that is a miracle. Because why would Christ want me, an ordinary person? The reality is he wants you because he wants to do something extraordinary in your life. And I want to challenge you that you would let this gift uh, that you are unwrapping, that this whole thing of Jesus, as you unwrap it, I want you to understand. And I want us to see him new. Because I think sometimes for you who are listening on this broadcast, if you grew up in church, sometimes we think of this as the old thing and we think of, oh, it's that time of year, we're doing this again. But understand that Jesus' blessings are new every day. He gives you new life every day. He, gives you, he wakes you up every morning. And what a joy. There are people who are dying every day who can't say that. So every day is a gift from God. And everything that we have is to be used as a gift of God. And I challenge you that you would not hold this gift, but that you would share this gift with others. This is Pastor Nicholas, and it's been an audition of you
0: Talk. Sit back, listen up for a short Christmas devotional, we'd like to share with you.
1: I have a Christmas devotional I'd like to share with you this morning. It's called Myrrh, a Royally Fine Gift, by Sandra Glan, adjunct professor of Christian education and pastoral ministries and editor-in-chief of Kindred Spirit of Dallas Theological Seminary. Opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. Myrrh, a royally fine gift. Would you give someone a casket or embalming fluid as a baby gift? Of course not. Yet that's exactly what we often think the Magi did in bringing myrrh to the Christ child. We know that first century people used myrrh to reduce pain and prepare the dead for burial. On the cross, Jesus refused wine mixed with myrrh before he died. And later, Nicodemus brought myrrh to prepare Jesus' corpse. Because of these associations, we tend to assume that the wise men had death in mind. Yet the Magi had no idea about the coming crucifixion. Jesus' own disciples comprehended it only afterward. Mary of Bethany alone, who anointed Jesus for burial, seems to have understood beforehand that our Savior had to die before returning to reign. We certainly see a literary foreshadowing of death in the Magi's gift, yet consciously they themselves would have connected their moor more with royalty. Think of how Esther spent six months using oil of myrrh before her night with the king. Esther chapter 2, verse 12. And later, in Psalm 45, verses 6 and 8, we read, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. When the Magi asked Herod the location of the one born king of the Jews, They said that they had come to worship him, Matthew 2, verse 2. Then, when the Magi finally found him, they knelt and paid homage with their lavish gifts. To connect Myrrh only with death is to miss Myrrh's strong association with riches, rejoicing, and royalty. Matthew's focus in the Christmas story is on the arrival of the king. Through his telling, we see that these wise men journeyed far to offer great gifts in honor of the one born Lord of Lords. Shall we, who know so much more of him, offer any less? Lord, we pray that we would understand your royalty this Christmas that you are in fact the king of kings and the lord of lords that one day you are coming back having come the first time as a lamb for sinners slain the one day king of kings you will come back as the lion of the tribe of judah to rule and to reign the earth in righteousness how we long for that day but until the day comes May we live under your kingship, your lordship of our lives. Jesus, may you be the king of Calvary Bible Church and the king of every other Christian assembly rooted in your word in the Bahamas and beyond. Lord, we enthrone you in our hearts and minds and lives with your royal dignity that myrrh reminds us of this Christmas. And we pray these things in your royal and beautiful name, Lord Jesus
0: Christ, amen. It's time for answers to your questions. We urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We here at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show. You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com. Today, Pastor Elliot draws from Carl Lainey's excellent book, Answers to Tough Questions. This book was published back in 1997 and once again here is is to Robert Elliott.
1: 1 Corinthians 3:15 gives rise to this question is Paul suggesting that believers will experience the fires of purgatory before going to heaven in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 13 to 15 Paul teaches that God will evaluate and reward the quality of each Christian's work. The results will entail both reward and loss, but Paul is quick to say that the loss will not endanger one's salvation. But what is the meaning of Paul's phrase, as though through fire? Is he referring to the fires of purgatory? Fire is used in scripture as an image of judgment. Uh, Compare 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. Passing through fire is indicative of a narrow escape. See Amos chapter 4 verse 11 and Zechariah chapter 3 verse 2. Paul uses the image of burning to refer to the testing of the believers' works. Worthless works will be burned up to the believer's loss, but no harm will come to the believer although the experience is likened to a narrow escape. Note Paul's use of the word as Greek hōs Paul is not saying that the believer passes through fire. His warning is hypothetical. It is merely as if this were the case. The doctrine of purgatory is based on the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, which was never accepted by Judaism or by the New Testament writers as inspired. 2 Maccabees chapter 12 verses 44 to 45 commends believers' excuse me, commends prayers and sacrifices for the dead so that they might be released from their sins. But Christ has paid the full and final sacrifice for sins. See Hebrews 1 verse 3 and Hebrews 1, Hebrews 10 verse 14. There is no biblical basis for purgatorial suffering for sins before entering heaven.
0: You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at EOCradio at gmail.com That's EOCradio at gmail.com or PO Box N1684 Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.